0: Yeah, we got some, got some. Joshua chapter 20 tonight. Thanks to endless Matlock reruns and episodes of Law and Order, most of us by now know the difference between first-degree murder and manslaughter. Murder in the first degree is a premeditated act with lethal intent. Manslaughter is an unintentional or accidental taking of another person's life. Well, in ancient times, if you were guilty of manslaughter, the family of the victim had the right to avenge their brother's death. That means they could chase you down and kill you in cold blood. You were a target. You lived your whole life looking over your shoulder. Reminds me of the two guys that were walking through the forest one day when this hungry bear jumped out of the woods. One guy pulls off his backpack and he takes off his heavy hiking boots and he starts laking, lacing up his Nike sneakers. And his buddy laughs at him. He says, Tennis shoes aren't gonna make you faster than a bear. And that's when the guy, as he's tying his laces, he says, I don't have to be faster than the bear. All I have to do is be faster than you. Well, in Old Testament times, it literally came down to a race between the avenger and the slayer. Which guy was faster afoot? The law of Moses provided protection for the person guilty of an accidental murder. In Numbers chapter 35, the Lord had told Moses that when Israel enters the land, they are to set up certain cities as safe havens for the manslayer. These cities were called cities of refuge. You could run to one of these cities and be safe. And Joshua enacts this law here in chapter 20, verse 1. The Lord also spoke to Joshua saying, Speak to the children of Israel, Appoint for yourselves cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the slayer who kills a person accidentally or unintentionally may flee there, and they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. And when he flees to one of those cities and stands at the entrance of the gate of the city and declares his case in the hearing of the elders of that city, they shall take him into the city as one of them. And give him a place that he may dwell among them. Then if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not deliver the slayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unintentionally, but did not hate him beforehand. And he shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment and until the death of the one who is high priest in those days. Then the slayer may return and come to his own city and his own house To the city from which he fled. Now, when a manslayer arrived in the city of refuge, his case was reviewed before the city elders. If they believed that his crime was unintentional, they took him in. And as long as he stayed within the city walls, he was safe. Now, if he ever went outside the city limits, he was fair game for the avenger. And his dilemma continued until the death of the high priest. Whether the priest lived to be 35 or 95, the slayer could return home safely only upon the death of the high priest. Now, all this seems to be to us an archaic rule. What relevance does this have for you and me? It seems that way until we begin to study this provision as a type of Jesus Christ. You see, I've discovered that whenever you get lost in the Bible, whenever you get confused or, or you're challenged trying to decipher a passage of Scripture, always look for Jesus in that passage. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus said, In the volume of the book, it is written of me. What is this book about? It's all about Jesus. You can find him on any page, every page, if you're looking. Jesus is on every page of this book. And here's a classic example. In a sense, all sin is murder. Why? The wages of sin is death. When you sin, you take your own life. Sin is really the initiation of a slow suicide. We need a place to run when we sin where we can find a safe haven and avoid the consequences of our sin. And Jesus is that place of refuge for you and me. You see, as long as we are in Christ, we're forgiven. We're safe from judgment. When we sin, we need to run to Jesus just as fast as we can. According to Jewish tradition, the roads leading to the city of refuge were kept cleared and passable. Bridges remained open. Signs with large letters read, "Miklach," or Refuge. They marked the way to these cities. Everything was done to make it as easy as possible for the guilty party to find his way to the place of safety and refuge. And in parallel, this is our job, is it not? God wants us to make it as easy as possible for people to come to Christ. Our job is to keep the road cleared of misconceptions, the bridges of understanding opened. Our lives should be huge road signs pointing people to our refuge, Jesus Christ. Well, there are at least eight other parallels I want to mention to you between Jesus and these cities of refuge. For one, the gates were never locked, and the way to Jesus is never, ever barred. As long as you were inside the city, you were safe. If you left, you were on your own. And the same is true with Jesus. This is why we need to continue steadfast to the end. We need to abide in Christ. You had to pick up and leave all your possessions to come to the city of refuge and likewise to follow Jesus. You have to leave behind anything that might rival your devotion to him. Refuge was available, but you had to come. And the same is true with Jesus. Whosoever will may come. Once inside the city, there were plenty of provisions, all you might ever need. And likewise for the human heart, when you enter into fellowship with Jesus, you find everything you need to be satisfied and to be fulfilled. The cities of refuge were established in advance. And likewise, Jesus was slain before the foundations of the world. He too was chosen beforehand to save us. And then according to Numbers 35 verse 15, strangers and Gentiles as well as Jews were welcome to come to these cities of refuge just as they are welcome to come to Christ Jesus. And then again, the death of the high priest granted total freedom, and it's because of the death of our high priest, Jesus Christ, that we receive a full and free and permanent pardon. Well, verse 7 lists these cities of refuge. They were scattered strategically throughout Israel to provide easy access. Three were west of the Jordan River, three were east of the Jordan River, And even the names of the cities speak to us of Jesus Christ. Take note. So they appointed Kedish, which means holiness, by the way, in Galilee, in the mountains of Naphtali, Shechem, which means shoulder, in the mountains of Ephraim, and Kirath Arba, which is Hebron, and the word Hebron means fellowship, in the mountains of Judah. And note, Jesus is our holiness, is He not? Jesus shoulders our burdens. Jesus provides us fellowship with God. And on the other side of the Jordan, by Jericho, eastward, they assign Bezir, which means fortified place, in the wilderness on the plain from the tribe of Reuben, Ramoth in Gilead. Ramoth means exaltation from the tribe of Gad, and Golan, which means joy. In Bashan, from the tribe of Manasseh, Jesus too is our protection. In Christ we are exalted. And certainly in Jesus we find great joy. All six blessings are found in Christ Jesus. He says, these were the cities appointed for the children of Israel and for the stranger who dwelt among them, that whoever killed a person accidentally might flee there and not die by the hand of the avenger of blood until he stood before the congregation. Chapter 21, then the heads of the father's houses of the Levites came near to Eliezer. Excuse me just one second. I just had something bugging me. Then the heads of the father's houses of the Levites came near to Eliezer the priest, to Joshua the son of Nun, and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the children of Israel. And they spoke to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, saying, The Lord commanded through Moses to give us cities to dwell in with their common lands for our livestock. Now remember Joshua 13, verse 33. There we were told, But to the tribe of Levi Moses had given no inheritance For the Lord God of Israel was their inheritance. To all the tribes, Joshua had allocated a parcel of land or territory except for the tribe of Levi. You remember when Israel sinned at Mount Sinai by worshiping the golden calf. The tribe of Levi was the tribe that was quick to repent and to take sides with the Lord. And as a result, the Lord blessed them with a special privilege. The other tribes inherited a parcel, but Levi inherited a privilege. Levi was the only tribe without a territory. The Lord, not the land, was their inheritance. They were given the special privilege of serving the Lord in the tabernacle. The Levites were allowed to live in close proximity to God. The beauty of holiness, the magnificence of God's glory, offered far more stimulating views than the highest mountain peak or the greenest valley. The Levites got a better deal. But they still needed a place to live. And so they were given cities throughout the land. They lived within the borders of the other tribes in what were called Levitical cities. And chapter 21 lists 48 cities given to accommodate the priests and the Levites. Verse 3. So the children of Israel gave to the Levites from their inheritance at the commandment of the Lord these cities and their common lands. Now the lot came out for the families of the Kohathites. You remember the three families of the Levites. We went over this earlier. You remember what they were? The first was the Kohathites, Kohath, and he handled the tabernacle furniture. Great. The Ark of the Covenant, the golden menorah, the table of showbread, and so forth. Then there was the family of Gershon, who was in charge of the... Oh, my. Listen, you're helping them. The fabrics... The tent coverings and the veils and all that uh, the the material of the tabernacle. And then Merari handled the tabernacle frame, the sockets and the poles and the boards. These were the specific duties for each of these three families. Now the rest of of chapter 21 lists these 48 cities. Among them were Hebron, Bethshemesh, and Gibeon. And remember Gibeon. You remember the deception of the Gibeonites? You see, the men of Gibeon, they were the ones that knew that God had told Joshua to conquer and to kill all the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. And the men of Gibeon were Canaanites. They were next on Joshua's hit list. They were the ones who pretended to be from a far country. And they ended up coercing Joshua into signing a peace treaty with them. And though he had been duped, Joshua was a man of his word. He kept his commitment. The Gibeonites were allowed to live and were even given roles, given work in the tabernacle service. They became the water carriers for the priests and the woodchoppers for the sacrifices. And that Gibeon was actually named a Levitical city was certainly an act of God's grace. Verse 18 says, Anathoth became a Levitical city. Anathoth's claim to fame was it was the hometown of the prophet Jeremiah. And if you remember, it was the men of Anathoth that plotted his assassination. You usually don't think of a group of priests and preachers plotting somebody's assassination, but that's what happened. Jeremiah's message apparently was so hated by the religious establishment that his own relatives put out a contract on him. Shechem was another Levitical city in the mountains of Ephraim, as was the city of Golan in the eastern side of the Jordan River. And Mahanaim, I like that, I, I like saying that. Mahanaim, I don't know if that's correct, but I, I, that's how I say it. It just sounds cool to me. Mahanaim was also east of the Jordan River. It will be the future capital of sons, Saul's son, Ishbosheth. We'll get to that a little later. Verse 41. All the cities of the Levites within the possession of the children of Israel were 48 cities with their common lands. And you can go back and you can read them all if you like. Every one of these cities had its common land surrounding it. Thus were all these cities. So the Lord gave to Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and dwelt in it. The Lord gave them rest all around, according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And not a man of all their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. Not a word failed of any good thing, which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. My, oh, my. Has this news gotten to you yet? God is faithful to his word. God's word fails not. God never makes a promise too good to be true. What God promises, friend, you can take it to the bank. Well, in chapter 22, the two and a half tribes who chose to settle east of the Jordan, they return home. But a misunderstanding follows that almost erupts into an east-west civil war. Chapter 22. Then Joshua called the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I commanded you. You have not left your brethren these many days up to this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brethren as he promised them. Now, therefore, return and go to your tents and to the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. And you remember this, don't you? How these two and a half tribes, they saw the lush land east of the Jordan River, and they thought, oh, wow, you know, we could graze our cattle right here. And so Moses gave them the land under the condition that they would cross over the Jordan, and they would fight with the other nine and a half tribes until the land had been conquered, then they could go back to the, to the territory that they had chosen. Verse 5, But take, heed, but take careful heed to the, do the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. Now to half the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan. But to the other half of it, Joseph, uh, Joshua gave a possession among their brethren on this side of the Jordan westward. And indeed, when Joshua sent them away to their tents, he blessed them and spoke to them, saying, Return with much riches to your tents, with very much livestock, with silver, with gold, with bronze, with iron, and with very much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brethren. So the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned and departed from the children of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the country of Gilead, to the land of their possession, which they had obtained according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. And remember, it was all east of the Jordan River. And when they came to the region of the Jordan, which is in the land of Canaan, The children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh built an altar there by the Jordan. Notice, a great, impressive altar. It caught the eye of the other tribes. It was great. It was impressive. It was noticeable. Now, the children of Israel heard someone say. Notice that. They heard someone say. Behold... The children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh have built an altar on the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region of the Jordan on the children of Israel's side. And when the children of Israel heard of it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered together at Shiloh to go to war against them. Deuteronomy 12 had made it clear that Israel was to worship God in a designated place that sacrifices could only be offered in a centralized location at the tabernacle, which at the time was located in Shiloh. So what are these renegade tribes doing on the banks of the Jordan? At first it seems as if they're erecting some kind of alternate altar. And the tribes thought, this smacks of idolatry. That must have been the assumption, for we're told the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered together at Shiloh to go to war against them. Now, it's a good thing that cooler heads prevailed. Before brothers start slaughtering brothers, someone suggests that the two sides sit down and have a conversation. Why is it we always want to fight before we talk? Why is it that husbands and wives always want to fight before they talk? Why is it that parents and teenagers always want to fight before they talk? Phineas, the priest and a delegation go down to the Jordan to find out what's really going on with Reuben and Gad in the half-tribe of Manasseh. They say, hey, let's have a talk. In verse 16 they ask, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What treachery is this that you have committed against the God of Israel to turn away this day from following the Lord in that you have built for yourselves an altar that you might rebel this day against the Lord. And they bring up something from Israel's past. Is the iniquity of Peor not enough for us? In other words, we've been down this idolatry road before and you know where it got us. He's he's referencing Balaam's scheme, the iniquity of Peor. You remember, Balaam led Israel into idolatry. Balaam had the king of Moab to send his women down into the camp of Israel and to sexually entice the men of Israel. Apparently it worked. The blood rushed from their head, and they ended up in bed with the women, and with their idols. And as a result, God brought judgment against Israel, and many thousands of people died. And they're asking, is the iniquity of Peor not enough for us? Don't we know what idolatry is going to do? From which we are not cleansed until this day, although there was a plague in the congregation of the Lord, but that you must turn away this day from following the Lord? Why are you doing this again? And it shall be if you rebel today against the Lord that tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. Remember what happens when there's sin in the camp. The whole congregation suffers. We remember Achan, that story. Well, nevertheless, if the land of your possession is unclean, then cross over to the land of the possession of the Lord where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take possession among us, but do not rebel against the Lord nor rebel against us by building yourselves an altar besides the altar of the Lord our God, did not Achan, the son of Zerah, commit a trespass in the accursed thing, and wrath fell on all the congregation of Israel. And that man did not perish alone in his iniquity. Verse 21. Then the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they answered and they said to the heads of the divisions of Israel, The Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods, He knows, and let Israel itself know, if it is in rebellion or if in treachery against the Lord, do not save us this day. If we have built ourselves an altar to turn from following the Lord, or if to offer on it burnt offerings or grain offerings, or if to offer peace offerings on it, let the Lord himself require an account. But in fact, we have done it for fear, for a reason, saying, In time to come, your descendants may speak to our descendants, saying, What have you to do with the Lord God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a border between you and us. You children of Reuben and children of Gad, you have no part in the Lord. So your descendants would make our descendants cease fearing the Lord. Phineas and these western tribes were afraid that the eastern tribes had forsaken God, but just the opposite had happened. You see, these two and a half tribes east of the Jordan... They had started to doubt their decision to separate themselves from their brothers. And they worried that one day the West Bank tribes might use the river as a boundary to block them from coming back to the tabernacle and worshiping God. And their altar there by the river was not to make sacrifice. It was to serve as a memorial and a reminder of their allegiance to the one true God. They explain this in verse 26. Therefore we said, let us now prepare to build ourselves an altar, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but that it may be a witness between you and us and our generations after us, that we may perform the service of the Lord before him with our burnt burnt offerings, with our sacrifices and with our peace offerings, that your descendants may not say to our descendants in time to come, you have no part in the Lord. Therefore we said that it will be, when they say this to us or to our generations in time to come, that we may say, Here is the replica of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, though not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifices, but it is a witness between you and us. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn from following the Lord this day to build an altar for burnt offerings, for grain offerings, or for sacrifices. Beside the altar of the Lord our God, which is before his tabernacle. They were right on. Good thing they talked, huh? Verse 30. Now when Phineas the priest and the rulers of the congregation, the heads of the divisions of Israel were with, who were with him, heard the words that the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the children of Manasseh spoke, it pleased them. Then Phineas, the son of Eleazar the priest said to the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the children of Manasseh, This day we perceive that the Lord is among us, because you have not committed this treachery against the Lord. Now you have delivered the children of Israel out of the hand of the Lord. And Phinehas the son of Eleazar the priest and the rulers returned from the children of Reuben and Gad and from the Gilead to the land of Canaan to the children of Israel, and they brought back word to them, so the thing pleased the children of Israel, and the children of Israel blessed God. They spoke no more of going against them in battle to destroy the land where, their children, where the children of Reuben and Gad dwelt. The children of Reuben and the children of Gad called the altar witness, for it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. But I want you to remember how this whole story started. Back in verse 11, if you don't mind underlining in your Bible, you need to underline this phrase. Verse 11, now the children of Israel heard someone say. <laughs> this all got heated up over hearsay. And here's the point we need to take to heart tonight. The nation almost goes to blows Brother almost sheds brother's blood. A bloody, violent war almost erupts over a stinking rumor. Guys, this is how all civil wars get started. This is how friends divide. This is how civil wars in churches get started. Someone hears someone else say. They take it to heart without checking it out. It's been said, when you jump to conclusions, you land in confusions. Relationships, marriages, churches blow up over hearsay, over miscommunication. How many church splits were the result of a misunderstanding that could have been averted, had both sides just sat down and talked? It's been said, handle a rumor like a check. Never endorse it until you know it's genuine. Shifting gears. On April the 19th, 1951, General Douglas MacArthur delivered a farewell speech before the U.S. Congress. It's a famous speech. And in his speech, General MacArthur made the comment, I still remember the refrain of an old but popular barracks battle which proclaimed most proudly that old soldiers never die, they just fade away. And like that old soldier in that ballad, I now close my military career and just fade away. An old soldier who tried to do his duty as God gave him the sight to see that duty. This old ballad could have been sung by General Joshua. Joshua is now 110 years old. He is an old soldier who has done his duty before God, and now it's his time to just fade away. But Joshua first calls together the people to make a speech. And in chapter 23, Israel's warrior General Joshua says his farewells. The aging general calls together the nation, the leaders, the people alike, to speak to them one final time. He says in verse 1, Now it came to pass (coughs) a long time after the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies round about that Joshua was old, advanced in age. And Joshua called for Israel, for the elders, for their heads, for their judges, And for their officers and said to them, I am old, advanced in age. You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has fought for you. And notice the general doesn't take any of the credit, does he? General Joshua has been there for each of these battles. As a matter of fact, he's led the charge But does he take credit? Absolutely not. I think it's one of the most disgusting things when leaders stand up and take credit for what God has done. Hey, he says, the Lord your God, He is the one who has fought for you. Joshua knows the Lord alone was responsible for Israel's victories. He makes it clear, the Lord your God is he who's fought for you. Verse 4, See, I have divided to you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes, from the Jordan with all the nations that I have cut off, as far as the great sea westward. And the Lord your God will expel from them before you and drive them out of your sight, so you shall possess their land as the Lord your God promised you. God is faithful to do His part. He will see to it that all the land is conquered if Israel does their part. And you know, in every work of God, there is God's part and there is our part. The question for Israel was never, will God do His part? Yes, He'll be faithful. The only question remains is, will Israel be obedient? Verse 6, Therefore... And he addresses that question. Be very courageous to keep and do your part. All that is written in the book of the law of Moses. Lest you turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. And lest you go among these nations, these who remain among you. And notice this. You shall not make mention of the name of their gods. In other words, don't even speak them. You know, we should be that afraid of worldly influences. That a- afraid of potential idolatry, that we don't even name it among us, nor cause anyone to swear by them. You shall not serve them nor bow down to them. You shall hold fast to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out from before you great and strong nations, but as for you, no one has been able to stand against you to this day. One man of you shall chase a thousand, for the Lord your God is he who fights for you as he promised you. Therefore, take careful heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God. Or else, if indeed you do go back and cling to the remnant of these nations, these that remain among you, and make marriages with them, and go into them, and they to you know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you. Notice, separation from the world was what meant power with God. The opposite was true too. Go to bed with the world and you forfeit God's blessing. You see, he's saying to them, how can you expect God to drive out the enemy if you've snuggled up next to her or next to him? You can't repent of the thing you're trying to nurture. It's a contradiction. The children of Israel were to keep themselves separate from the world. Separate from those pagan nations among them. God would drive them out if they maintained a separation and a holiness unto him. You see, Joshua is concerned about the Canaanites who've been allowed to remain in the land. These Canaanites were vile pagan people. And Joshua is concerned because he knows that it's a lot easier for bad people to rub off on good people than it is for good people to rub off on bad people. You see, sin is a communicable disease. Righteousness is not. Righteousness takes initiative on your part. Sin, though, is contagious. You can just pick it up by being around the wrong people sometimes. Parents, you need to remember this when your kids start to select their own friends. Joshua can foresee the day when toleration with these pagan people will become socialization. And socialization will then become assimilation. The Hebrews will intermarry the pagans around them and be drawn into their idolatry. And Joshua warns Israel that the little pockets of paganism they've allowed to remain will ultimately become their downfall. Guys, we too have to be on guard against the danger of assimilation. As the old saying goes, we are in the world, but not of the world. Too much exposure to godless philosophies, to secular values, will draw us into its web. We're all like Noah's ark. God designed Noah's ark to float in the water. The ark in the water was no problem at all. But if the ark started taking on water, if water got into the ark, it was a whole different story. And the same is true with you and me. Christians are designed to be in this world, to be a witness, to be overcomers. A Christian in the world is no problem. The danger is when the world and its philosophies and its appetites and its attitudes get into the Christian. When that happens, there's danger, there's problems. This is why we need to remain separate from the world. Hey, A certain amount of separation is necessary to lead a godly life. There's no question. God wants us to be holy. That word means separate. He expects us to reserve our minds and our hearts and our bodies for godly influences, for healthy preoccupations. Never forget, temptation is like flypaper. Once you land, it's hard to leave. Well, in verse 13... Joshua warns Israel of pagan influences. He says, but they shall be snares. Notice this, snares and traps to you and scourges on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Alan Redpath puts it this way. He says, how often we see that the temptation we have pampered and encouraged and indulged in has become a scourge and a thorn in our side. The compromising Christian is not a happy man. Let the enemy remain in a Christian life. Let him have one foothold and he soon becomes a scourge. How often has the thing that brought you initial pleasure ended up becoming your thorn and your scourge? Joshua warns Israel not to marry these pagan people around them. (laughs) A bride can become a blight. Don't say amen to that, guys. Just be careful. The thing that you love, the thing that you initially indulge in, can become a scourge and a thorn. That's why we need to keep ourselves separate from this world. Verse 14. Behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth... And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. Hey, the word of God is fail-proof. Therefore, it shall come to pass that as all the good things have come upon you which the Lord your God promised you, so the Lord will bring upon you all harmful things until he has destroyed you from this good land which the Lord your God has given you, when you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God which he commanded you, and have gone and served other gods and bowed down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and you shall perish quickly from the good land which he has given you. You see, God is always faithful. It's up to your response to determine whether he's going to be faithful to bless you or whether he's going to be faithful to curse you. But God is going to be faithful. You just get to decide how he's going to be faithful to you. After Joshua's farewell speech, the old general, he calls for Israel to gather together at Shechem, which was a few miles north of his home up in the mountains of Ephraim. And here Joshua issues a final challenge. He says in verse 1, Then Joshua (coughs) gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel, for their heads, for their judges, and for their officers. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua gives them a history lesson. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, He's an old man, you know, he's 110 years old. That's my old man impersonation, but it it didn't work very well, did it? (laughs) Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. This is something you might not have noticed earlier. Isn't this interesting? Abraham came from an idolatrous family. Did you know that? Now Abraham is someone that we call the father of our faith. And here we can appreciate his faith. His own dad was an idolater. Apparently, the only impetus in Abraham's life that drew him to God was the hunger of his own heart. I think that's why it's fitting that we call Abraham the father of our faith. Here was a man surrounded by idols and idolaters, and yet faith in the one true God sprung up in his unlikely heart. He says, Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants, and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, to Esau... I gave the mountains of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Also, I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt ten times, by the way. According to what I did among them, afterward, I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the sea, So they cried out to the Lord, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, brought the sea upon them and covered them, and your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. Then you dwelt in the wilderness for a long time. Forty years is a long time. And they needed to be reminded of their history. You know, you and I need to be reminded of our history. I went to four or five graduation ceremonies this past week, and someone said something to the graduates, I think it was at Nick's baccalaureate last week, the speaker made the comment, he said, three things you should never forget. Who you are, where you've come from, and what you stand for. I like that. We need to remember our past. We need to remember our history so that we know where we're going in our future This is what he's doing. He's recounting their history. He says, And I brought you into the land of the Amorites, who dwelt on the other side of the Jordan, and they fought with you. But I gave them into your hand, that you might possess their land, and I destroyed them from before you. And he's referring to their victories over King Og and King Zihon, the nations east of the Jordan River. In verse 9, he reminds them of Balaam and their victory over the Moabites. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, Zippor, not Zipper, Zippor, king of Moab arose to make war against Israel and sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam, therefore he continued to bless you. So I delivered you out of his hand. Joshua next recounts the battle of Jericho and begins to sum up their victories over the Amorites. Then you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the men of Jericho fought against you. Also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. But I delivered them into your hand. I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you. Also the two kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword or with your bow. Now the Hebrew translation for hornet means stinging wasps. And apparently the Hebrew army was assisted by a swarm of insects in their assault upon the land. Long before cruise missiles and Patriot missiles and Scud missiles, the Hebrew artillery consisted of WASP missiles. Imagine, though, going going into combat after you've been stung by a swarm of WASPs. You would not be a very effective soldier, to say the least. Any Georgia bulldog will tell you it's no fun to get stung by a yellow jacket. Trust me happens very rarely, but it's no fun when it does. (laughs) Last week, we mentioned the parallels between Joshua and Revelation. Here's another. You remember the fifth trumpet judgment in Revelation chapter 5? It predicts a five-month plague of stinging locusts. A swarm of hornets also helped Joshua in his conquest. Well, verse 13 tells us, I have given you a land for which you did not labor, and cities which you did not build, and you dwell in them. You eat of the vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. When Joshua invaded the land, he took over a land already furnished. And I don't know if you recognized it, but verse 13 is a description of the Christian life. Because haven't we gone into a, a land that we didn't labor for? Aren't we enjoying blessings that we didn't earn? That were all won for us through Jesus Christ? This is God's grace. It's love and blessing that's on the house. That you didn't manufacture, that you didn't earn. It was paid for on the cross, and we receive it by faith. Not effort, not elbow grease. Well, verse 14, Joshua continues. Now, therefore, fear the Lord, serve Him in sincerity and in truth, And put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And notice a detail here. (laughs) Notice the Hebrew slaves in Egypt had sunk so low that they had put their faith and they had worshipped the gods of the Egyptians. Did you notice that? Moses not only had to overcome the Pharaoh's stubbornness, but the Hebrews' unbelief. Well, Joshua says, <coughs> serve God in sincerity and in truth. And in verse 15, <coughs> excuse me, he issues his immortal challenge. <coughs> and if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. Catch this. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Patrick Henry shouted, Give me liberty or give me death. His famous battle cry. Israeli soldiers today, they go out into battle with shouts of Kadima, which means, Let's go. Go for it. By the way, this is the word that's now the name for the political party that was started by Ariel Sharon Kadima. The battle cry among the passengers that thwarted the terrorist attempts on United Flight 93 on September 11th 11th were, Let's roll! I'm okay now. Japan's battle cry in World War II was, Tora, Tora, Tora. You know what that means? Tiger, tiger, tiger. But here is Joshua's famous battle cry. And it's become the battle cry for every Christian family. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now here is a line that has adorned bookmarks and cross stitches and wedding albums You see it just about everywhere. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And yet, let me ask you tonight. Has this declaration been written on your heart? Maybe it's cross-stitched on your Bible cover. or Maybe it hangs above your sink. But has it been written on your heart? Has Joshua's statement become your battle cry? The battle cry of your heart? As for me... And my spouse and our kids, we are determined, we are committed to serve the Lord at any cost. You know, sometimes my kids want to indulge in a questionable activity. They want to go to a movie that's questionable or dirty. Or they want to listen to music they shouldn't be listening to. And, and I tell them, no, I don't mind putting my foot down. I'm not running for (laughs) re-election. I'm their dad. And that's when they'll respond, Oh, Dad, everybody else is doing it. And my reply is simple. Who cares? (laughs) Who cares what everybody else is doing? Who cares if everybody else runs over a cliff? I'm not going to do it. Remember, the majority yelled out, crucify him, crucify him. Did they make the right choice? Notice a river. Only the dead fish go with the flow. Only the dead fish go with the flow. The fish that are alive are the ones that are swimming against the current. I love Joshua's attitude. His decision has already been made. His mind is made up. He doesn't care what everybody else happens to be doing. He is determined. He has set. He is committed. He says to the Hebrews, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And in verse 16, Israel answers Joshua. So the people answered and said, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage, who did those great things in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went, and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwelt in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve the Lord For he is is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. He's telling them, hey, you can't thumb your nose in God's face. You can't just deliberately defy him and then expect his favor and his forgiveness. A A relationship with anyone doesn't work that way. God is no fool. He says, verse 21, And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. And so Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. Have you seen that new LeBron James t-shirt? It's black and it's got those white letters that read "Witness." That was originally the T-shirt worn by the Hebrews who told Joshua that they would serve the Lord. They were witnesses to their own commitment, he tells them. He says, Now therefore, put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve and His voice we will obey. And so Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. Verse 26. Then Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and he set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness to us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. It shall therefore be a witness to you lest you deny your God. So Joshua let the people depart, each to his own inheritance. Now it came to pass after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath-Zerah, which is in the mountains of Ephraim, on the north side of Mount Gosh, And the greatest tribute that a leader can ever be paid is attributed to Joshua in verse 31, for it sums up Joshua's marvelous legacy. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. What a tribute to a leader. As long as Joshua was at the helm, the ship never steered off course. And in addition, Joshua was able to pass on his convictions to his elders. He replicated his commitment. Quite a leader. Joshua was such an example of faith and obedience and determination, he literally impacted two generations his own, and the generation that came after him. He lived to the grand old age of 110 years old, and he was buried at home, at home in the promised land, in the land that had taken him 40 years to enter. He was buried high up in the mountains of Ephraim in the inheritance that he had received from God. Where else would the good general have wanted to rest. And there we have the book of Joshua.